0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, August second, two 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. If you have ever been invited to a dinner party, or, or let's just say you're ever invited to a dinner party from this point forward, and it's one of those dinner parties where everybody doesn't know each other. You've been to one of those? You get invited to one of those dinner parties where you know someone but not everyone? From now forward, if you're ever invited to one of those dinner parties, let me give you a tip. If if you want to make the evening uncomfortable for everybody, maybe you're bored, I don't know, and you want to make it uncomfortable for everybody, here's what you do. You talk about religion, money, or politics. One of those three. If you want to make it uncomfortable, do that. If you don't want to make it uncomfortable, then the opposite is true. Don't talk about religion, money, or politics. Take, take the Aaron Burr approach for all those Hamilton fans. Talk less and smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or, or what you're for. That'll make the night a lot easier for you. But as we saw last week, and we'll continue to look at this week in Luke chapter 14, that was not Jesus's strategy On a particular evening, when he was invited to a dinner party, being thrown by one of the religious leaders, inviting other religious leaders and well-to-do people at his house for a, a great party, a great dinner party, where the expected entertainment was going to be the entrapment and the discrediting of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who has been traveling around the region, preaching in the name of God himself. But for Jesus, this was... Just another occasion, ripe with opportunity, to expose for those who would have ears to hear the nature of His kingdom, and an opportunity to begin to expose again the reality of the battle for each and every single one of our hearts, for those who would have ears to hear Him, and He's going to continue to do it through parables he's going to tell stories in the midst of this dinner party. It's not going to be the entertainment that the host had anticipated, but it's what they needed. And as we saw last week, if you're just joining us for the first time this week, you need to understand that not all parables that Jesus will say are sweet stories. We tend to think about parables, and we tend to think about them more like nice, sweet fables, kind of like Aesop's fables. And that's not the nature of Jesus' parables. And the reality of it is, a lot of Jesus' parables make people uncomfortable. They make them angry, so much so that there were many who sought to kill him after he would tell these stories. And what we see from the start of this evening, the very beginning of the chapter, Jesus' parables would leave the crowd around him uncomfortable and speechless. In fact, in verses 4 and 6, you can go back and look at them for yourself this week, twice Luke reminds us that as Jesus begins to speak and begins to confront their efforts at discrediting him, those who were there had nothing to say. You would ask them a question and they were left speechless. And so I imagine as we continue through the evening, that speechlessness was probably the tone of the night. I imagine there were many times throughout the evening with Jesus on this particular occasion that people were left without something to say because the tension of the evening just kept rising. We saw last week in verses 7 through 11 as Jesus would observe the people around them taking extra effort, taking great pains to exalt themselves to the places of honor and Jesus would just tell a story, an uncomfortable story exposing their pride and calling them to a life of humility and alluding to this is the kind of humility we saw last week that is necessary to receive the word of his kingdom. And I bet as Jesus just told that story while they were jockeying for positions around the table that it got quiet and there wasn't much that they could say to him. Speechless once again. But at some point the party would continue, people would get their seats, people would find their positions, and the evening would go on. In verses 12 through 14, we looked last week that it probably got quiet again as Jesus addressed the host of the party and through a parable began to challenge the the underlying motive behind the parties themselves, behind the spending such elaborate resources only to be repaid in kind by those that you would invite to the party. And Jesus, again, begins to expose the heart, the relationship there between the heart and our resources. And I bet as he told that story and it came to a conclusion, everyone around him in the dinner party was speechless. Again, I imagine it got quiet. But you know, if you've been to parties like this, there's, there's always that person there's always someone on the guest list who is uncomfortable with this kind of silence. So, as Jesus finishes that second story and he, he gives his underlying foundation, his underlying motivation for, for spending not to get in return, but to spend that others might be blessed, he, he grounds the motive in, in a joy and a forward hope in the gospel resurrection. We saw last week that fear that often grips us, afraid we're gonna be missing out on something here in this earth because our hearts are so settled in the here and now and our hearts have not been renewed to find a longing and a hope for what is to come. And Jesus grounds them in the promised resurrection and everybody gets quiet. There's someone around the table who begins to break the silence with a a toast of, of sorts. Verse 15 is where we pick it up. It says, when one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, Jesus saying, You're not going to miss out on anything because of the resurrection. When he heard these things, he he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. To the revolution. It's, It's a bit of a toast. He was taking the moment. He he heard what Jesus said. Everybody is left silent. Jesus has talked about the promised resurrection, and he offers a, a platitude of sorts that was common in that day as God's people looked forward to the promised kingdom of God that God had said would come, that his Messiah would inaugurate. Now, we'll see it again and be reminded again that his anticipation and expectation of that was a little bit off, but this toast carried with it and an air of certainty and an air an of presumption that Jesus just wouldn't let go of. It carried with it the, the tone of, especially those of us here, right? Blessed are we who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Remember, they were looking for a Messiah that was going to come and enact a a geopolitical revolution of sorts that would overthrow the Roman occupation that God would establish. His geopolitical throne in Jerusalem, his people would reign. The blessing of God through this promised Messiah would come here and now, right there in that way. And here is this man making this toast to all that would hear. And blessed are we who are gonna eat bread in that kingdom. And while what he said was true, Jesus doesn't give him what he expects. Jesus doesn't respond with a hearty, amen, yes, and verily, let it be. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus responds with a parable. And for those who were present, it would make them uncomfortable. But for those who would have ears to hear, it would be unimaginably spectacular news. Now, let me just ask you a question while you're sitting here. Since we're here and it's a small number and we're here, do you like to know what I am going to show you when we go through the verses ahead of time? Or do you like to see them as we come to them all the way? I can tell you what you're going to see now or you can just kind of watch it unfold. What do you think? I can't hear people on the sofa, so you have to tell me. You want to see it now? All right, we've got to see it now. Here's what you're going to see. Jesus is going, for those who have ears to hear him, give those who are listening a warning that they need to heed. There's going to be an invitation that needs to be received. And there's going to be a mission that needs to be pursued. Watch for them as we go through the story. Verse 16, Jesus said to this man and to everyone who's listening, a man once gave a great banquet and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Now, there's a little cultural context there for what's happening that will help make the story make more sense for you. In those days, just like last week, we talked about the formality that would happen around the table at parties like this, the actual preparation for the party was very formal and very intentional. For a banquet like this, and when Jesus says here a great banquet, behind that word great is a word that you and I would translate like mega. So there's a man who is throwing a mega banquet, like bigger than you and I could imagine. He's got lots of juice for a party like this, lots of resource. This is bigger than you and I can get our heads around. So it's going to be a mega banquet. And for someone to throw a feast or a banquet like this, something would have to happen. They would send out an invitation that would go to everybody on the invite list. And that was the first of two invitations. That was the invitation they would send out to say, hey, this is going to happen. Set the date. This is coming, right? They would hear back from that invitation who was coming, because in those days in particular, you didn't have grocery stores and refrigerators and freezers. You would hear back from everyone on the list who was coming, and their yes was a yes, and their no was a no. And based on what you got back from them in the first invitation, you would begin to prepare the feast and the banquet. I mean, if it's five people, you don't kill two cows. You change the plans. So they hear back from the first invitation, and the banquet gets established. Things get prepared. Things are coming. But then a second invitation goes out. The second invitation goes out to everyone who had responded, and they say everything is ready. The party's happening now. The first one said, it's coming. The second one said, it's ready. And it's here. This is what's happening. The second invitation has gone out. Come for everything is now ready. And in verse 18, Jesus says that they all alike began to make excuses. So they had said yes to the first invitation. Yes, I want to come to the mega banquet. Yes, I'm going to be at the mega banquet. Yes, have a place for me at the mega banquet. And when the second invitation came, saying everything is ready, they said, eh, I don't really want to come they made excuses. Now, I grew up in the South, and and one of the things that's been funny about growing up in the South is that people don't realize we spoke in tweets before there was Twitter. Southerners have short sayings for everything, right? I'm more frightened than a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I must have heard that a thousand times growing up. We got all kinds of things. One of the things I heard a thousand times growing up too is simply this. You know what an excuse is? An excuse is a half-baked lie, cooked, simmered in, resourced with and seasoned with a truth. It's a half-baked lie, cooked with the truth. See, those listening to Jesus in the moment, those at the party hearing the story, they would have heard what was happening and they would have immediately heard the absurdity of the excuses that people are going to give this servant or why they're not going to come to the party. And not only would they hear the absurdity, they would feel the sense of shame, the calculated shame, the intentional act that was made to make the host feel shamed for those who would say yes and then decide at a later date to say, hmm, no, I don't really want to. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now, it's polite, please have me excused, but it's rather a bit absurd. I mean, you've bought a field, and now you have to go look at it? You had plenty of notice as to when this party was going to happen. You you knew when you were going to get this field. Transactions like that, that would usually happen between families, took a long period of time. And let's just be honest, is the dirt gonna get up and go anywhere? No. It's weird now to say, well, who would buy a field like that, sight unseen, not knowing what you're getting? But I know people buy houses now without ever looking at them because they go on the internet and think a picture tells the truth. So that's really a bad comparison because we do it, but it should feel just as absurd. And the second person says, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. Again, it's, it's polite. Please, please have me excuse. I'm not going to be able to make it, even though I said I was. Why? Because I bought 10 oxen. That's what, two, that's what it is. That's what five yoke are. It's 10, because it's two under a yoke. And I need to go look at them. 10 oxen, most scholars say, would have cost about two and a half times an annual salary. Now, who is going to go pay for and buy a... I don't even know what a modern equivalent would be. I know for those who, who grew up in the farm world that modern combines are six figures. I mean, who would, who would go and pay two and a half times your annual salary for a piece of equipment having not looked at it before? Not knowing if it even works. I need to go examine these oxen. I need to make sure they can actually pull the plow together and be yoked together. Well, who hasn't looked at that yet? kind of absurd. Seems silly. The third, absurd, maybe a little less, and at least tries to lean into the Old Testament. Another said in verse 20, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, now this person was probably leaning into that Old Testament law that, that gave a husband a year off of military duty when he got married, so that he and his wife could have children and begin their life together. But do you know how long a wedding ceremony and planning takes in this day? Longer than any of yours. So when you get this invitation to this feast, you already know if you're getting married whether or not there's going to be a conflict. And how does going to this great mega feast get in the way of your first year of trying to have children? It might actually help. So, everybody who would hear it would be like, eh, still a little bit absurd. A half-baked lie at at best, cooked with a, a little bit of a reason. As one scholar was noting about these excuses, he said, possessions and affections, put them all together and they encompass nearly everything that support all of our excuses. And in telling the story, you've got to be clear, Jesus isn't isn't knocking either possessions, the land, the oxen, or affections, this this new marriage. What the story is, is showing for those who are hearing here at this point is that these good things become absurd when we use them as excuses for turning down the mega banquet. The reality is they're turning down the invite because they just don't want to go now. Whatever it is that has captured their heart, their mind, their attention, and their priority, to them, is more important and more satisfying than going to this mega banquet. They just don't want to go. Something is more compelling to them. So as Jesus continues the story, people are listening, and they're feeling the absurdity of the excuses and, and what it must be to be that host who is, who's now being shamed in public for all these people that are turning down his invitation. And here comes the biggest surprise, Verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. That same quartet of people mentioned earlier in the chapter. Those who couldn't pay you back that you were to invite to your parties. Those who were most marginalized in your day. Those who would see your invitation to your mega banquet, your mega feast, as nothing but sheer grace because they never thought they'd be on the list in the first place. He says, Go out and get them. And in verse 22, the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So now the the host is extending his invitation to his mega banquet beyond all the associated boundaries that would ever happen with this kind of party. Get on the highways, those main routes that head out of the city, out of the village. Go beyond the hedges, those boundaries that mark off the territories of where we live. Go out there to the areas where the most outcast, the most neglected, the most cast off were often left outside of the city. Head out as far as you go. And compel them to come in. Compel them because they're not going to believe that this invitation is for them. It's too good to be true. Especially those that no one even lets into the town. And then Jesus closes his story. And he, here's, here's the thing: a careful reading of what Jesus says as he closes this story is going to cast light back onto the parable, back onto the story he just told, and expose for us what he was after. Right? What he says right here in verse 24 is kind of the interpretive key to the whole thing. Jesus says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And once again for the evening, I imagine that everybody who was there was speechless. It got quiet. Because they of all people right there, right then, in that day, understood exactly what Jesus was saying. What did he just do? Well, he's been telling a story, right? He's been telling a parable to everybody who was there at the dinner banquet. And right here as he closes the story, Jesus shifts into the first person. Did you catch it? None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The storyteller just became the host in the story. Jesus just said, we're talking about my banquet. We're talking about my feast. Remember that the guy who was uncomfortable with the silence earlier and jumped in when Jesus was talking about the resurrection, jumped in with that platitude about eating the Messianic feast, about enjoying the Messianic banquet when God established his kingdom, right? And then Jesus tells the story and he said, careful about presuming yourself to be on the invite list. For none of these men who were invited will taste my banquet." Jesus is reframing the nature and the expectations of his kingdom. His kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God, will be the mega banquet to beat all banquets. We started talking about our perceptions of eternity, our perceptions of heaven, our perceptions of God's kingdom last week, but This that Jesus is talking about, if we're really honest, is not our natural perception of what eternity with God is going to be like. But the eternal kingdom of God that we have been invited to by Christ is going to be a mega banquet beyond all conceivable imagination. It is going to be soul satisfaction after satisfaction after satisfaction. So much so that every craving and every longing that we have here on this earth is but a shadow of that which God is going to fulfill for all of eternity in the hearts of his people. The kingdom of God, heaven, it's not some ethereal existence. We talked about it last week. It's not some sterile, ethereal place, but it's a mega banquet. Satisfaction after satisfaction hosted by our king. Do we have a right perception of what eternity with God is really going to be like? Jesus didn't disagree with the statement. There's going to be a feast when the kingdom of God is established. But the expectations that some of those had for who was going to be there and what it was going to be like were a little bit off. And so as he again begins to expose and reframe gently one more time for those who would hear that the nature of his kingdom, he offers a warning. There's a warning for those who would listen to him to heed. And it makes him uncomfortable. Jesus is saying to everyone who is listening the first invitation has gone out. To those who were surrounding him at that party, the religious leaders, the upright of society, the, the Israelites of his day, the first invitation has gone, gone out. God has spoken long ago through his prophets. He has spoken of his kingdom. He's spoken of his Messiah. He's spoken of his promise. It's coming. The first invitation has gone out, and you were interested. You want in. You wanted what God was offering now. The second invitation has come. The kingdom is here. It's now. God has sent his son to declare it's ready. And you don't want to be a part of it. This is what was happening earlier in Luke's gospel. This is how Luke has framed his entire narrative. Back in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, let let me just read this to you. Jesus is back in Nazareth. You know the story. And he goes to the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to read The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled the scroll up, gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, and the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom of God is here. The banquet is ready. But what he is saying through the story he is telling is that you don't really want it right now. There's something else that has captured your affections, your heart, your expectation of what God is going to do. Not only that, you presume that because you're familiar with the things of the kingdom that you're in, but you're not willing to become one of my disciples. Familiar with what I've said and what God has said, but not not repentant faith in what I am doing. For those who have ears to hear, even today, Jesus is talking to those of us who are familiar with him, familiar with his person, familiar with his work, familiar with his word, familiar with his kingdom, familiar with his gospel, but are not his followers like those who were sitting around the table not willing to receive him as king. Maybe we're interested. Maybe that first invite comes. We hear we want to be a part of it, but, you know, not right now because other things have captured our attention. Other things have captured our affections. Those who were listening to Jesus failed to see how desperate they really were for God's salvation. They were convinced that because of their knowledge and their behavior, they were good enough to enter God's eternal party. That's why Jesus responded to the man's toast the way he did, because it was full of presumption. Those listening lacked the very humility that Jesus spoke about earlier in the party to admit just how desperate we are and how much we need God to save us. This is the... This is the card-carrying reality of religion apart from the gospel. We become familiar with Jesus. The scary thing is that those of us who are often most familiar with Jesus are the ones that end up missing him entirely. We can find ourselves preferring a message from Jesus that directs us into a particular type of good life that we're supposed to live, that we can monitor, that we can assess, that we can check, and we can earn our way to a particular way, a a certain level of excitement and passion and and activism that is to mark us, a, a message that inspires us to just be a better version of ourselves. I mean, this is the sad nature of so much modern, contemporary Christian writing. But it's not the gospel, It's not the word of the kingdom. It's not the message that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, that sin has utterly corrupted our entire being. It's not the message that God sent his only Son, one who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, to die a horrific death in our place, to suffer the wrath of God for our sin and his justice because we're so helpless in ourselves. The religious crowd, like like those at the party Jesus is attending, they find that message hard to swallow. And in the end, they often reject it because inside they feel so worthy of God's feast. Jesus has been preaching everywhere that he goes that it's the poor in spirit who will receive the word of the kingdom. The problem is it's the middle class in spirit who struggle. I'm not that bad. I've made some bad decisions in my day. I've made some pretty big mistakes, but... I haven't botched it up as much as this person or that person or that group or or whatever it is. See, it's the poor in spirit who see the invitation for what it is. When they hear it, they treat it with the utmost importance and they receive it with joy. For those around the table that night when Jesus tells the story, in his kindness and in his grace, he gives them a warning to heed and he gives us a warning to heed if we'll listen to it. We're not to presume upon the kindness of God. Those who think themselves most worthy, Jesus just said, aren't even going to eat a crumb or a crouton at his kingdom feast. Don't mistake familiarity with Jesus, with what he has said, with a genuine repentant faith in what he has done. Friends, are you a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, or are you just really familiar with him? There's a warning for those who will listen, but not just that. There's there's an invitation to be received as well. See, everyone understands on this side of the cross, reading back into the stories, knowing what we know about how it's going to end and where things go, that when we read this parable, we understand that this story is a bit of a precursor. It's a bit of an anticipation to what's going to happen. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, the invitation to the eternal feast of God is going to go out from the Jews first, from God's people to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, to the nations. Jesus is just anticipating what he has already said is going to happen. John records it in John 1, when John said he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but who, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, in the story of redemption, we are the spiritually poor who have nothing to offer Jesus in return for his grace. We're the spiritually blind who are unable on our own to see the truth about Jesus. We're the spiritually crippled who have been made powerless by our sin. And the spiritually lame who are unable to come to God on our own. Jesus is saying that his eternal banquet feast, the invitation is going to be extended to the uttermost. Now, in a very real way, in the day in which Jesus said this and those heard it, you've got to realize that Jewish authorities said no one in any of those four categories could enter the temple to worship. And even more so, there was a community in Jesus' day known as the Qumran community. And they took this teaching a step further. And they said those that were crippled or blind or lame or poor. It wasn't just that they couldn't enter the temple to worship. They actually said they weren't going to be at God's messianic feast when he establishes his kingdom. They excluded them from that. But these are the very people that Jesus says the invitation is going to go out to. These are the very ones that Jesus includes. This is what the gospel does. It creates an entirely different guest list than one you and I would create because if we're really honest, if we were gonna say who's going to eat at the feast of the kingdom, who's going to be in the presence of God for all of eternity, the people that we would put on the list if we had to write it were the people that looked like the ones at the dinner that night, wouldn't we? The ones that do all the right things, read all the right things, follow all the rules. But that's not the list that Jesus gave the gospel utterly transforms the reality of who is going to be present for all of eternity to enter into the joy of God. Satisfaction upon satisfaction for all of eternity to all who will receive him, who believe in his name. He gives the right to become his children. All is ready, Jesus said. I love that phrase. The gospel is not a potluck message. This wasn't a banquet where you had to go and and fix your family's best dish. You had to figure out what's that recipe that's been in your family for generations that everybody loves, and you gotta bring that thing to the party. Everybody is not providing something for this banquet. It's all been done. Everything has been provided for. Everything has been prepared. All that's left for you to do is simply receive it. Paul said that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Literally, in his body, on the cross, Jesus paid the debt that you and I owe to God because of our sin. He suffered the wrath of God in our place, in your place. Why? So that in him, for all who would receive him, so that in him, all who aren't just familiar with what he's done but have a repentant faith in who he is, we might become the righteousness of God. Four times in the story, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, this host extends an invitation he sends out an invitation. For those who are broken, the gospel extends the invitation to come. For those who are poor, it extends an invitation to come. For those who are discouraged, it sends an invitation to come. Behold, God's word says, everyone who thirsts, let him come to the waters and drink. Let him who is thirsty come. Come. John said, as many as received him, he gave them the power. Whoever would humble themselves, repent of their sin, their self-righteousness, take the low position and follow Jesus, the invitation is for you. I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves as we go through it is how important is the invitation to us? I mean, how important is it? Let me give you a bit of a comparison that might be helpful. I tried to think of an event like the one that Jesus is talking about in the story, and I've never been to one that can compare. And thinking about what exists in our world that might be able to compare, the closest thing that I could come to that we would all be familiar with was the royal wedding that happened a couple of years ago. I mean, that is a mega event beyond all mega events. And I don't think anyone here in the room and probably watching right now online got an invitation. But you can go online and you can look at the invitation. And do you know how the invitation to that event starts? Have you ever looked at it? This is what it says. The Lord Chamberlain is commanded by the queen to invite, and there's your name, right? How many people that received this invitation, how many people do you think got it? I, mean, I don't even know how they sent that thing. I doubt it went in the mail, but they got it, and they went, huh, I've got some dirt I need to go look at. I think it would be fun, but maybe another time. I, I've, I've got a car that I, I, I bought, and, well, I need to go see if it actually runs, How many people do you think received that invitation to that banquet, to that moment, and came up with an excuse like that? Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has been commanded on behalf of Almighty God to invite you to his banquet. It's an invitation for lost people to be found, for broken people to be put back together. For addicted people to be set free, for lonely people to find community, for all of us to have shame and regret lifted, for sins to be forgiven, for hostilities to be destroyed. Doesn't that invitation beat everything else? How important is the invitation to you? It goes out this morning even to those who are familiar with his words but have never submitted to his authority. Don't presume upon his kindness and say, yes, I want the kingdom, I want the feast, just not now, I'll come back later. Friends, our satisfactions, our affections have been captured by an idea of the present and the now that is dangerous and seems all too important to us. Greater to our hearts than the satisfaction that God provides for all of eternity. How important is the invitation to you? Are you longing for the reality of it? I think the sad thing about it is we talk more about hell than we do about eternity in the presence of God. We fear more not being with him than we long for being with him. Which gets me to the last piece, which is how we'll end. Jesus reinforces for those who would have ears to hear a a mission for his people. The master said to his servant in verse 23, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. My house, Jesus said. On this side of eternity, the followers of Jesus play the role of the servant in the story. And we've been sent out by our king to compel men and women and children from the highways and beyond the hedges to hear and receive the invitation of the gospel. And we've been sent out that his house would be filled. We go to every neighborhood and every nation to make disciples of Jesus, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And as we go, we go in the comfort and the security and the knowledge that he will always be with us. That's what he said. And if you go back and you read the story, read it this week, you'll hear it in the voice of the master and the story the host of the party. There's an urgency when he speaks to his servant. There's an urgency to the task. We are to go and present a compelling gospel. And for that to happen, we need as God's people to have our thinking about eternity with him to be renewed by his word. We're to compel people by the grace of God That he, by the work of his Holy Spirit, upon hearing the word of his kingdom, would work in them a hunger for the feast that God is preparing. A desire to long to be with him in eternity. And for that to be a reality, our own thinking about it needs to be renewed. Friends, are you willing to pray that we become compelling Christians? Compelling teachers, compelling families, compelling neighbors, compelling missionaries so compelled by the very Spirit of God, empowered by the work of His Spirit in us, that people will come in and Jesus' house will be filled. Friends, we can go about this task that He set us upon with confidence. Because we know in His time and according to His good word, His house is going to be filled. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus means that part of the way that he is going to fill his house is you and I going out and proclaiming this compelling message. I was reminded just this week, thinking about this as we begin to wrap up, that it was persecution that sent the church in Jerusalem out beyond the hedges, on the highways to the nations, just as Jesus had commanded. And here we are in the days of a pandemic And I feel like the same thing is happening because one of the most instructive, one of the most powerful, one of the most opportune spaces for the compelling nature of the gospel to be proclaimed and heard is in your own home or around a table with a meal or a cup of coffee with someone that you're communicating and doing life with. In fact, Tim Chester, some of you are familiar with Chester, he wrote a book about the meals that Jesus eats in the Bible And he said, how would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came, and then he goes on to show there are three ways the New Testament completes it. He said the New Testament completes that sentence with three answers, to to serve and not be served, to give his life as a ransom for many, to seek and save the lost, and then the third way it talks about it in the New Testament, he came eating and drinking. The first two describe why he came, the third explains how he came. Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. It's not that the meals themselves save people, but people are saved through the gospel message. But these meals will create a natural opportunity to share that message in a context that resonates with what you're saying. Friends, that is the thing that is possible in the age of a pandemic. Do you realize that God has prepared us particularly for such a time as this? There's no big event. There's no big program. There's no well-oiled machine. There's nothing that we can all do right here, right now, but you can do this. You can take a walk, share a cup of coffee, have a meal, invite someone into your home, and you can compel them to come. That God has made everything ready. And by His grace, you might experience the speechlessness of someone who has ears to hear that invitation that it's for them. Someone who was convinced that they would never be on that list, that it was too good to be true. Friends, this is the nature of our God and King. Church, he's given us such an opportunity. What an opportunity he has given us in these days. Friends, may we go in God's joy. May we go with His grace. May we go empowered by His Spirit. And may we go according to His promise. Go, that His house may be filled. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to His Word. Father, we ask this morning that You would do the miraculous that only You can do, that You would make us, Your church, compelling believers, compelling Christians. For that to happen, we need your Holy Spirit to renew our hearts and minds that we would rethink and long for an eternity with you, that we would rethink eternity in such a way that we are eager to be with you. The reality of your kingdom banquet, that it would cast a shadow over everything in the here and now, that it would change our perspective on not only who we are, but the lives we live, the decisions we make, the choices we have, that our hearts would be so captivated and set in eternity with you, that it would change the everyday for us here and now. Father, for those who are listening to this, who never believed that the invitation to your kingdom was for them. Lord, would you give them ears to hear? Give them ears to hear and the freedom to repent and enter your joy. We ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.